And once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 6. If you're new with us, we welcome you. It's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through the Gospel of John at, uh, here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We're in chapter 6. And in this chapter, Jesus performs a miracle. Now, on the face of it, that's not unusual. He performed a lot of miracles during the course of his ministry. What's uh, different about this miracle is that it's recorded in all four of the Gospels, the only one that was recorded in all four Gospels. Now, that alone should tell us this is an extremely important miracle. So important, the Holy Spirit wanted to record it four times. I think we'd all agree that whatever the Holy Spirit records in Scripture is important, okay? Um, if he records it twice and even three times, we would all agree it's incredibly important, and we should take note. But the Holy Spirit chose to record the feeding of the 5,000 four times. That means he wants us to really study this incident and to never forget the lessons he is teaching us through it. I think primarily the Holy Spirit wants us to know that impossible problems are God's specialty. Someone has said, we are all faced with a series of great opportunities disguised as impossible problems. Remember that next time you're facing an impossible problem. It's interesting to me that the Holy Spirit chose to record this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, in all four of the Gospels, when he chose to only record the raising of Lazarus in one Gospel, the Gospel of John chapter 11. Now, in my mind, you know, the raising of Lazarus from the dead was a much more spectacular miracle than the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days, right? And when Jesus came to the tomb and said, look, roll the stone away in preparation for him raising Lazarus, Martha, you got to read it out of the King James, guys. Martha spoke these immortal words, but Lord, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> you can't improve on that. I'm sorry. I think maybe it has to do with the fact that while giving physical life back to Lazarus was a spectacular miracle, no doubt, it takes a backseat to Jesus giving spiritual life to people who partake of the bread of life, which is the whole point spiritually of this miracle and i'm not just guessing we'll see that at the end of the chapter jesus actually ties uh this he'll see it as we we go through this but uh guys as we take a composite look at the four gospels we see that about the time that john 6 opens up jesus is withdrawing more and more from public ministry to spend time alone with his father and with his disciples let me stop and say this about John's gospel. He organized it in such a way that much of Jesus' ministry, as recorded in the synoptic gospels, he left out. As we look at the four gospels, we can see that three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are similar. And because of that, they are what is known as the synoptic gospels, from a Greek word that means to see together or to share a common point of view. In other words, they're similar. The Synoptic Gospels focus primarily on Jesus' Galilean ministry and his public teachings, while, the, while John's Gospel 
focuses mainly on Jesus' Judean ministry and his private teachings to his disciples. I don't know if you realize this, but almost one half of John's entire gospel deals with the last half of Jesus' life. And one half of that is devoted to the last 12 to 18 hours of his life before the cross. See, John gives us a detailed look into the final hours of Jesus' life on the earth in a way the other Gospels do not. That's why his is so incredible, okay? I mean, only John's Gospel shows us things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke left out because that wasn't really their focus to give all this detail. Where John, his Gospel is selective. Read John 20, verses 30 and 31. He had a definite purpose for writing his gospel, and he selected events and miracles that went along with presenting that purpose. He does not record events in the life of Jesus that are superfluous to the main purpose for which he wrote his gospel, and that is to present Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. Again, John 20, verses 30 to 31. Now, I say all that so that you'll understand that John's gospel is more topical than it is chronological. And as such, again, he skips over large amounts of Jesus' life and ministry. For example, between the healing of the paralytic, the man who was paralyzed in John, uh, we say John 5, verses 1 to 15, between that event and then the opening of John chapter 6, John jumps over a whole bunch of stuff. During that gap of time, he, uh, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He taught the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, along with many other events and miracles that uh, other gospels include. You can look at Luke chapter 1, excuse me, look at Luke chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 9, basically verse 10. Uh, Mark 3, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 30. Those sections of scripture uh, will give you events that John just simply overlooked. Uh, at between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. And so, as I said just a moment ago, about the time John 6 opens up, we are now in the final year of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And so we see him at this point withdrawing more and more from public ministry to spend more time alone with his father and with his disciples. There are several reasons why he started to withdraw himself. Several reasons for these withdrawals. Number one, first of all, was the growing hostility of his enemies toward him. He was not afraid of his enemies, but he had a specific time that he was going to go to the cross. Uh, we know in Ecclesiastes 3, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. The Lord Jesus said several times, my time is not yet. My time has not yet come. He was waiting for a very specific time to announce his messiahship and then to go to the cross. And because things had ratcheted up and escalated to a point where the hostility was now not just simmering toward him from his enemies, it was boiling over, he withdrew. No sense in provoking them to move hastily to murder him. It'll all happen in God's time. So he withdrew. The second reason was he needed to prepare physically, emotionally, and spiritually for his crucifixion. That sounds a little odd to us because Jesus is God. But in human form, he had to, he got hungry, he got tired. And we know, guys, that when he 
the events that led up to the cross, the last 12 hours of his life, we'll say, the devil so ramped up his attacks against the Lord Jesus, something we, would, we can't even understand what he went through. The spiritual oppression and t- attacks were so incredible, he actually sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had to prepare physically for that. He had to prepare mentally and spiritually. And so we see him withdrawing from the crowds because the main purpose for which he was born, to go to the cross and die for our sins, was looming now on the horizon. He had to prepare for that. I think one of the other main reasons why he was withdrawing himself was, as we just said earlier, to prepare the disciples to take over his ministry once he departed. Very important. Um, They weren't ready at this point to do that. And that's why he wanted to spend the last few months really focusing on them, really teaching them, really ministering to them, because in a very short time he would be going back to his father after he was crucified and rose from the dead, and they would be taking over the ministry he had begun. Now as we look and take a composite look at the other Gospels, we can see another very important reason, practical reason, why he withdrew at this point, because we're studying now John 6, where he withdraws with his disciples to a deserted place. Uh, The big reason for that, and why he wanted to get along with his disciples, is because you remember earlier, he sent them out two by two, the, the apostles, to preach the gospel. Again, all preparation for when they would not have him here physically, and they would have to go out preaching the gospel. So he gives them a little, you know, a little taste of it. He gives them a little preview of what's going to be like. So he sends them out, and they go out preaching. And then they come back. Well, I just want to read to you. I'm not going to have you turn to these. Just write them down. Uh, Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Verse 2. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So he sends them out now to, to preach and to minister and to heal and cast out demons. Verse 10, they come back. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the, to a, the city called Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida was a Jewish town located on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing town, so much so that the very name Bethsaida means house of fishing. All right? House of fishing. In John chapter 1 verse, excuse me, John chapter 6 verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is, uh, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. A little history. The Sea of Tiberias is, excuse me, the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of Tiberias because the city of Tiberias, Tiberias back then and even today uh, sits on the shores of its western bank, north, northwest part of the Sea of Galilee, okay? And... Um, the city was the capital of the Roman province of Galilee uh, in that region, and it was named after the Roman emperor Tiberius, obviously. So Jesus decided to withdraw with his disciples to a remote area on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, known as Bethsaida, crossing it from the western shores of the Sea of Galilee uh, to the east where Bethsaida was by boat. And again, his plan was to spend some time resting with his Disciples, Mark 6, verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things 
both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. For there were many people, crowds were everywhere, coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So practically, they had to, the people would have kept coming nonstop 24-7. Jesus had to decide when enough ministry had taken place for the day or for the next few days to get alone with his disciples or even to get alone by himself. Because burnout was back then and still is very much a problem today in ministry. A lot of men uh, leave ministry because of burnout. As the old saying goes, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And uh, that's how it goes, right? And so in your mind's eye, you can look at a Bible map later on today. Imagine the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about seven and a half miles wide, 15 miles long. And if you imagine the very northern part of it, okay, you have the, the town of Capernaum on roughly the northwest part shores of the Sea of Galilee and you go to the east around the top of the uh, Sea of Galilee about three miles and you come to the city of Bethsaida. Jesus decided to have his guys and him jump in a boat and sail across the three miles basically okay and uh, but here's the thing the crowds saw him going getting into the boat with his disciples they saw the boat launch out into the Sea of Galilee and they knew where they were headed it's obvious. They're going to Bethsaida, okay? Jewish town. No doubt it's going to preach there. So the people decided, well, there's not enough boats for us all. So they started running, jogging around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Now, they didn't have Nikes in those days. So they were using sandals. You couldn't make as good a time. So it would take about an hour to go by boat and an hour to jog across around the Sea of Galilee. Here's the thing, okay? If the winds were contrary, and they must have been that day, when you're rowing, if the winds were contrary, it would take you longer to row the three miles than it would to take a person to jog the three miles. And that's what happened, though. Uh, we, we read that in Mark chapter 6, verses 32 and 3, that by the time Jesus and the disciples got to Bethsaida, well, the crowd had already beaten them there, and it was a pretty big crowd. You see, what happened was, as the people started jogging around the Sea of Galilee, they were passing through these villages and towns, and you know how it is, a bunch of people are running, it's like, what's going on, where are you going, where are you going? Jesus is going, he's going to land over here, Jesus! And so, like a snowball rolling downhill, the more villages they passed through, the more people that gathered to them. By the time they got there, the uh, Gospels tell us there were 5,000 men plus women and children. Probably around 20,000 people were waiting for Jesus when he landed there to get some rest, start a vacation. Not the best way to start your vacation, right? And so on. So, um, And we, we know this from the Gospels, that often when Jesus needed rest and tried to get rest, um, the crowds would find him and his disciples and would keep him from getting the rest he needed. But, you know, the Lord Jesus had a shepherd's heart, and he couldn't turn away herding sheep. It just, he, just, he just couldn't turn away herding sheep. We'll see that in just a second. And so we see, read the Gospels, and we see how that whenever the crowds found him, when he was trying to rest, or even when he was grieving uh, over the death of his cousin John the Baptist, and would need to get away, spend a little time grieving. The crowds found him, 
Yet he didn't rebuke them. He didn't ignore them. He didn't send them away in anger. He had compassion on them, and he would unselfishly always minister to their needs in spite of his own need for rest and solitude. Now, guys, it is true that many of the people that followed Jesus, and especially on this day, were thrill-seekers. We get that impression from John 2, verses 23 to 25. A lot of the folks that followed Jesus simply did it because, let's be honest, he was the greatest show in town. I mean, you know, I mean, he'd come into a town and he'd work miracles and people, oh, just, he was just a dynamic, he was a great apostle, excuse me, a great prophet. Uh, and of course, since a lot of these folks hated the Jewish leadership, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, they were crooked, corrupt, arrogant, condescending to normal folks. When Jesus was around, he'd put these guys down. He'd put them in their place. They loved it, okay? They loved it. So a lot of folks just like to be around him because of the excitement factor. But I'm convinced on this day, especially, I'm convinced that the majority of these people were simply desperate people that needed to be healed or desperate people that wanted to be, made, to be made whole. And that actually is the first point, first main point in our outline, the desperation of the multitudes. Verse 1, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, his miracles, which he performed on those who were, listen, diseased. That's the key. That's the key. People hoped that Jesus could heal them or heal a loved one of some severe disease. Guys, we live at a time when medical science has far surpassed anything they knew in Jesus they or even dreamed about, I'm convinced. Many diseases and ailments that are easily treated today, well, were terminal back then. Oh, a number of years ago, my family and I, we visited historic Williamsburg on a family vacation. And uh, if you've ever been there, they have a, 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 an area where they've recreated a street uh, with shops and period lighting. Everything is authentic to the period, okay? And you walk down this colonial street, basically, and you can go to the various shops, and the guides will explain uh, you know, how that shop functioned in those days. And we went into the print shop, uh, and that's where I learned where the phrase uh, uppercase letters came from. They were actually kept in the printer's uppercase. And they have to be taken out, along with the lowercase letters, assembled in a, uh, like a, a box, a square. And then the, they were inked, and then, of course, the paper was pressed down or they were pressed down on the paper. I can't remember which one it was, but that's how they were. It was all by hand, right? Also, the printer in this shop asked us, what do you think was the best-selling book in colonial times? I said, the Bible. No, that was the second best. The best-selling book in colonial times was a book filled with blank pages. They loved the journal. They would fill up journals constantly. That's how we know so much about this period. They wrote so much about it. I think John Adams never missed a, an entry in his journal for 24 years every day. That's how meticulous they were, okay? 
So we're walking down the street, you know, and enjoying. I'm enjoying the history. I don't know about my family. I, I enjoy history, okay? And uh, they put up with it for Dad. But we went into the barber shop. I also learned something I didn't know. Barbers performed surgeries back then. I mean, not all surgeries, but some surgeries. They even did some dental work. So you go in there for a shave and get a tooth pulled, okay? <laughs> but the guide said that they would advertise that this was a barber shop by taking some of the bloody rags that they had used in surgery and stick them on a pole outside the barber shop, which let people know we do, this is a barber shop. We do surgeries in here. And that's where the pole came from today with the white and red stripes. It came from that practice. I did not know that, right? But the guide in that, the, the barbershop guide said to us, they said, you know, many diseases that, that are easily cured today were fatal back in colonial days. He talked about appendicitis. He said, today appendicitis, no big deal. You have your appendix removed, no big deal. Back then it was almost always fatal. And he mentioned that one specific disease by name. Uh, most people died from appendicitis back in those days, right? Now, guys, that was 1,700 years after the days of Jesus. 1,700 years, and that's how primitive it was 1,700 years after the time of Christ. I mean, at the time that Jesus lived, medical science, quote-unquote, uh, was really nothing more than home remedies and superstitions. Because of it, and since the healing of Serious disease was almost non-existent. My point is that people were desperate who had serious stuff that couldn't be healed with just a home remedy. If it was something serious, they were desperate to have someone give them some hope and to heal this disease. We see this come through in the pages of the gospel. One story that comes to my mind of a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years uh, had gone to many, many doctors. In fact, spent all of her money on doctors. Nobody could heal her. She hears about Jesus coming to town, the man who has been healing uh, people of diseases. And so she says, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. And so here he comes, and a crowd is thronging him, and she makes her way through the crowd and crouches down. And as he passes by, she, he, she touches the hem of his garment, and boom, instantly she's healed. Jesus stops. Somebody touched me. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. As the crowd parts and this little gal falls at his feet, he says, no, I'm not mad. I want to commend you for your faith. Your faith has made you well. A lot of people touch Jesus, never receive anything because they just hang out with Jesus. Their touch is not a touch of faith. Remember that, okay? Remember that. But people were desperate back then to be healed. And um, there's something, guys, about being desperate before God that causes him to hear our prayers, have compassion on us, and act on our behalf. And I believe it is because at that point, we've exhausted all of our resources, all of our options, all of our strength. You know, the Lord wants to get the glory for the work he does. And he doesn't want to share his glory with anyone else because he did the work, right? And oftentimes, we, especially if we're very resourceful, you know, we want to figure out how God can best do his work. We don't ever say it like this, but let's be honest. 
We, we, we think about our plans. We got a problem. We don't know. You know it's a serious problem. And uh, we go to town, laying awake at night, figuring out how we, you know, we're going to get it solved. We figure out this plan. We come to God and say, oh, Lord, I got this beautiful plan worked out. If you'll just get on board with me, and you'll just, you know, and, and Lord, br just bring this plan to pass. I, it's going to be okay. And God says, no, I'm not going to help you with your plans. So go ahead. Do what you want to do and try to fix everything. And when you're exhausted, when you're uh, broken, and when you're desperate before me because you have no other options, your human strength has failed, then come back and we'll talk. And that, guys, is what I believe is what God is waiting for. He's waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves, to abandon all self-effort, all self-confidence, and all self-reliance in a given situation, to embrace by faith His power, His sufficiency, in a broken kind of way. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10? When I am weak, then I'm strong. When I'm not trying to do it in my own energy, my own strength, but now I'm relying on God's strength and power, then I'm really strong. And I'm in a place where God says, okay, now I can work. You, you, you got that out of your system? Okay. You try to work this out? You try to fix it? Okay. Now step aside. Let me work is the idea. Look at, you don't have to turn there. Psalm 53, verse 2. Listen to this. Listen, Psalm 53, verse 2. God looked down from heaven. So he's looking now from heaven upon the children of men, listen, to see if there were any who understood this principle, who sought, and I'm reading out of the Amplified, the word means to inquire after and desperately required God. God is looking for people who are broken, who are desperate, who understand the principle that God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the broken, the helpless, those who have no recourse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For they shall see God. And the Greek word means completely destitute, like a quadriplegic is destitute. It has no power to ever do anything to raise up from that situation. Is it totally at the mercy of others? That's how God wants us to see ourselves. Completely broken. Of any, we have nothing to offer God. And we come to him with that kind of a heart. God then is attentive to our prayers. Jeremiah 29, 13. God said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with what? All of your heart, implying passion. The effective, fervent prayers of the righteous, James says, accomplishes great things. There's a sense of urgency, a sense of passion there. A sense of desperation, if you will, that God is looking for. He doesn't want to help smug, self-sufficient people. God, I can really do it. I just need you to give me a little... I can climb the fence, God. I just, maybe a 10% shot. Just give me a little boost. I can do it. No, God says, no, you can't do anything. You need to understand that. But guys, let me just say this and we'll move on. All right? Not even desperate faith and prayer will guarantee that God will heal you or work a miracle on your behalf. But let me say this to you. If you want God to work... The best place to be in is a place of brokenness and desperation. Because then, it's, as we read scripture, God's ear is attentive to those kind of people. 
No, not the kind of we're giving God reasons why he should help him because I'm a good person, God, and here's what I've done. No. God, I am not worthy of the least of your blessings or mercies. I am a sinner. I have blown it. I deserve nothing from you. But I come in brokenness and desperation. God, will you help me? And I'll tell you, that's when he most always works. So guys, once again, it seems that the Lord is especially compassionate to desperate, hurting people. Which brings us to our next main point. We saw the desperation of the multitudes. Next, we see the compassion of the Savior. Verse 3. And Jesus went up on the mountain which was overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The Greek does not necessarily mean a mountain. If you ever look at the Sea of Galilee, you go online. There's bluffs all around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, the last time we went to Israel, I'm convinced we went up to one of the... It could have been the very bluff. Jesus was there with his disciples. Uh, it was pretty high. and You got to see great view of the Sea of Galilee. But he went up, no doubt, on one of these bluffs with his disciples and sat there with his disciples. Verse 4... Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. And let me stop there. At this point, the other Gospels add, Matthew 14, verse 14. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. And listen, he was moved with compassion for them and healed their, healed their sick. Mark tells us, Mark 6, 34. And Jesus... When he came out, saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. And here he is, the good shepherd. There's no way the good shepherd ever turns a blind eye to hurting sheep. Now listen, when you're trying to get some R&R, &R, okay, I mean, the last thing you want when you get to where you're going to have that rest and relaxation is to have 20,000 people waiting for you to minister to them. All right? And as I said, Jesus and his disciples desperately needed some rest. Yet, the needs of the multitudes touched his heart. The word translated, move with compassion. Mark 6.34. Uh, Matthew uh, 14, uh, 14, verse 14. Move with compassion. Uh, it's a word in the Greek translated, um, uh, is a word translated, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the word in Greek that was translated, uh, move with compassion, actually means to have one's inner being stirred. From what I understand, it's a much stronger Greek word than just simply the word sympathy. The word was used 12 times in the Gospels, eight of those times, uh, it's uh, a reference to Jesus being moved with compassion towards hurting and desperate people. Look, it's a part of God's nature to show compassion to hurting people. Psalm 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion, and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. In Lamentations, which Jeremiah wrote, chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, this I recall to my mind. Therefore, Jeremiah is talking. It's not so good. He didn't name the book Lamentations for nothing. Okay, He's lamenting over the fact that, uh, that uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, has been taken captive into Babylon. I'll talk about that more in just a second. 
Yeah, I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. So he's trying to go back. If you don't know all that God is doing, fall back on what you do know. He's a loving God, a caring God, who does not take pleasure out of hurting anybody. He may put us through difficult times to get our attention and to teach us. But we have to go back and, and fall back on Scripture, which is what Jeremiah was doing. Look, pretty bad. Uh, I was devastated by what had happened, but I comforted myself by recalling God's compassions in the past. Therefore, I have hope. Verse 22, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because, listen, his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I love your, uh, Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. God said, can a woman forget her nursing child? You talk about a mom. No greater love than a mother, mother's love for her baby, right? God is saying, can a mother for, forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Well, maybe she could, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. What do you think he's talking about? The nail prints. Whenever you doubt if God really loves you, just remember those nail print hands reaching out to you, saying, come to me. I don't care what you've done, you come to me. Someone, guys, has said that the word compassion actually comes from a root word that means, listen, to get into the skin of another. To get into the skin of another. And that's exactly what the incarnation was all about, wasn't it? Adam blew it in the garden for all of his descendants. And Almighty God didn't just feel sorry for us. I can feel sorry for somebody and not do anything to help them. Oh, that's rough. It's, God could have said, oh, you, oh man, Adam, you, you, you messed up. You messed up, son. I, boy, I feel bad about it. All right, have a, have a good one. I'm going to go over here to the other side of the galaxy and make another planet and uh, I try again, okay? The Bible says God didn't just feel sorry for us when the human race fell, he had compassion on us. In other words, he did something. He climbed into our skin, became one of us, to eventually die for all of us. Ezekiel was what is called an exilic prophet. In other words, he prophesied in Babylon after the captivity. You have to remember now, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken captive about 115 years earlier, around 722 B.C., by the Assyrians because of the wickedness of the northern kingdom of Israel. Southern kingdom lasted another 115 years. They had some good kings, some periods of, of um, reformation and things. But eventually they became so wicked that God brought the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to take them away captive to Babylon. God speaks to Ezekiel at one point. You can read about this in Ezekiel 3, verse 15. He speaks to Ezekiel and says, Go down to the river Kibar. I want you to minister to these people. So Ezekiel goes down there, and here's what it says. He said, I sat where they sat. I sat where they sat. We would say, I walked a mile in their shoes. Right? How are you going to minister to people 
if you don't know what they're going through, right? And by the way, God didn't say go down there and make sure they know why they're here, okay? Some Christians think that it's our, you know, the, the Great Commission was to go out and tell the whole world how bad they are, okay? Well, you know what? You're getting what you deserve now. You realize that, don't you? I mean, you know, you get cirrhosis what, because you drink, you drank so many years. Look, people don't need for us to point out why they're so sick or why their lives are so devastated. They often know that very well. They don't need us to point out the obvious, and God doesn't want us to do it either. What God wants us to do is to have some compassion. And you're never going to have compassion for people who are broken sinners if you don't get to know them, if you don't uh, spend some time with them. You talk to the folks who go down every year, uh, twice a year, to feed the homeless down in Chicago. They'll tell you about folks down there because they've sat where they sat. They've talked with them. Now they can better understand what they're going through. And sure, we know a lot of them are there because of, of, of drug issues and alcohol issues. We know that. We don't, they don't need to point that out to them. What God wants us to do is go where they are, sit where they sit, understand where they're at, have some compassion that we can then give them hope by telling them, look, I know your life has been pretty devastated by it, but Jesus Christ is the solution. Jesus Christ can take your life and not only glue it back together, he'll make it brand new. And he can return to you all the years the locusts have eaten if you come to him. If you come to him. So we've seen the desperation of the multitudes, the compassion of the Savior. The third one, we'll just start this uh, today. We'll finish it next time. The preparation of the disciples. Now we've alluded to this. Verse, excuse me, John 6, verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, whenever you read in the Bible, God asking a question, will you please remember this? God never asks a question to get information. He knows everything. All right? He knows everything. This was just designed to draw out of the disciples faith. Okay? Faith. In fact, Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, verse 15, When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place. Will you remember those two words? This is a deserted place. And the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Well, here they're standing in the presence of the bread of life. The one who brought manna from heaven for 40 years in the wilderness to feed Israel. And now he became flesh and is standing among them. The very bread of life. By this time, guys, in his ministry, Jesus had already worked so many miracles. John says at the end of his gospel, I, could, I, could, I can't even include all of them in my, in, in, in my gospel. There are so many. At this point, Jesus had cured countless incurable diseases, cast out many, many demons, even raised some dead people. So you think, by this point, about a year from the cross, the disciples would have been walking in a little more faith than we see them walking in here. You'd think that by this time they would have got excited over impossible problems. Jesus is here. Nothing's impossible for him, right? You think they would have kind of got excited. Hey, it's getting late. I get, these people have no food. Oh, this is great. He's going to feed all these people, you know. 
Lord, what are you going to do? No, no, send him away, Lord. We, we better, you know, get rid of him. Send him away, you know. It's late, they got to buy food. Now look, I realize at this point the disciples were not spirit-filled men. In fact, they weren't even New Testament Christians. They were saved, don't get me wrong, in the Old Testament sense. They didn't become New Testament Christians until John 20, the night of the resurrection where he breathed on them and the Spirit came in them. And we'll talk about that more as we get, when we get there. When we talk about being Spirit-filled, we're not saying the Spirit of God was in them. Every Christian has the Spirit of God in them. Not all Christians have the Spirit of God upon them. That's that anointing for ministry. That's where the power comes, okay? But... Um, these guys were Old Testament believers, okay? But today, just today, all right, there are a lot of non-spirit-filled Christians. I'm talking about really saved now. I'm talking about real Christians now. But they're not spirit-filled. In other words, the Spirit of God is not upon them in the sense they have power. Wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high, because then the Spirit of God will come upon you, I think. You know, that, that's, you know, we see a lot of Christians... Who are not spirit-filled. And they go to non-spirit-filled churches. And when you have these kind of Christians, their first impulse, when people come to them for help with their needs, whether those needs be spiritual or physical, their first impulse is to send these people away to the world for help. That's a travesty. But that we see it all the time. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, great commentator, nailed it. He said, right now, church leaders are saying that we need to send the multitudes away, that there are natural ways of caring for their needs. We send them to the psychiatrist for emotional help and to the government for physical relief. The, things, the thing which is lacking today is the power of the Lord Jesus. If we only had that power, we wouldn't need to send the multitude away. We fail to realize that the solutions today are not in government nor in human in, in imaginations, but in God, end quote, in the power of God. Guys, many churches today are, listen, deserted places. Remember I said, hang on to those two words? Where were they? In a deserted place. Many churches today are deserted places where the presence of God has long since moved out, and the power of the Holy Spirit has long since been gone. You can read Ezekiel chapter 10. That literally happened to Israel. And all that's left is worldly wisdom and human ingenuity. So many churches today, they are secular organizations. That's all they are. They, they call themselves churches. They have pastors, but they're really secular organizations God is not there. The Spirit of God is no power. There's no life. The focus is on everything but what it should be on, which is going into all the world and preaching the good news that people might be saved. It's social justice. It's environmentalism. A lot of green churches. Everything but. You can always tell a non-spirit-filled church because the passion for souls is just not there. Oh, they're looking for new members all the time to, you know, increase the, the role, bring money into the coffers. It's not really about saving souls. It's about filling pews. Not the same thing. The disciples needed 
some lessons in faith if they were going to continue the work Jesus had begun after his departure. That's what he was trying to do now, build into these men. Matthew 14, verse 15, When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. They don't need to go away. And then I believe he turned to Philip, as we read in John 6, verse 5, and said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. We've already talked about this. A denarius was the equivalent of a day's wage for a soldier or for a blue-collar working guy. And so 200 denarii was about six and a half, seven months wage for an average working guy. Why did Philip mention that amount? Why did he pick that amount to mention? 200 denarii. I think it was because that was what they had in the group treasury. You know, we know that Judas was the group treasurer. Now, we know he was dipping into the money bag and stealing from it. But it could very well be that that very morning he gave a financial report, letting all the guys know what they had in the, you know, in the ministry coffers, you know, in the treasury, 200 denarii. So Philip, who's a numbers guy, okay, obviously, he's crunching the numbers right away. When you're a numbers person and you're really practical, not putting that down, but you're, if you're really practical and you're a numbers person and you're involved in leadership, nothing happens but what we have to have the money in the bank. Okay? Philip looked at the situation. A lot of folks here. 20,000 people. I know we got 200 denarii in the, in the treasury. That's not enough to give everybody just a little bit of food. Um, I understand. Uh, I'm not putting Philip down. Uh, I relate to him in a lot of ways. Um, his assessment that from a financial standpoint, there wasn't enough money in the treasury to buy enough food to give each person just a little taste. Here's the thing. And this is where Jesus was really trying to teach his guys a lesson in faith. When you serve the Lord like we do in this church, the pastors and myself, we always want to, um, you know, employ good, sound financial principles, okay? But once in a while, the Lord will say to us, take a step in faith. Now, you better be sure the Lord's speaking, Okay? Because a lot of times it's presumption masquerading as the Lord speaking. Okay? There's a lot of churches who have decided if you build it, they will come. God told me. So they bankrupt the church or they put the church in massive debt, build this phenomenal structure. Because after all, if you have a big church, big building, people are drawn to that. And the church is destroyed. I've seen it happen numerous times. But there are times when God will say, look, for many years, we just broke even. The church wasn't, you know, we, we were paying our bills. 
uh, you know, but we didn't have any extra money for anything. Then one day God says, take a step in faith and go on the radio. Well, Lord, that's expensive. And, you know, we, we don't have the money for that. No, you don't have the money for it, but I'm telling you to take a step in faith and trust me. So we prayed. And eventually we decided, well, God, we feel God's in it. Took a step in faith and went on the radio and um, that next week I'm trying to do this from memory without telling anybody anything of our needs we got a check in the mail for $30,000 from a couple that had come to Calvary years early they moved to England they know nothing about the radio we didn't tell anybody we had a check for $30,000 that covered almost the entire first year because we were only on 15 minutes back then, four days a week. Eventually, as doors opened up, we kept taking steps in faith, and eventually we went on twice a week, twice a day, five days a week. Now, when you take a step in faith, and God provided, so he was in it. Sometimes, though, after you are walking in this thing, whatever it is, ministry, maybe God says, okay, season's done. And I want you out now. Because about three years down the road, we went into a financial crisis. Uh, actually, it's four years. This was 04, we went on the radio, and 08. Remember the crash of 08? Okay? Things got really tight. I mean, really tight. And we kept taking money out of savings to pay for the radio uh, you know, broadcast. And our money was going down, down, down. Finally, it was getting uh, pretty critical. And so we were praying. And, you know, you, you, you know, even though you take a step in faith, God still wants you then to be responsible. So where God guides, he provides. That's what we've always believed. If he's not providing, well, either he's not guiding or this season is through and you need to pull out of it. And so we were wrestling with all of that. And so I kept praying, all of us actually kept praying and praying and praying. Every week, finances were dwindling more and more. Finally, it got to about seven days uh, left that I had to make a decision. And I just prayed. Lord, you know, I'm willing to take a step in faith. I'm willing to do anything by faith. But I also know you want us to be responsible with your money. And this could have been a season. And the radio season is over, and you want us out now. Because if you're not providing anymore, then maybe you're not guiding anymore. Okay? And so I said, Lord, look, I don't want to give you any kind of an ultimatum. Or I just The reality is, if we don't know by next week that you want us to stay in radio, then we'll take it as a sign from you that you want us to pull out. And we just prayed. We left it with the Lord. I didn't come to you guys. We need money. You know, if you don't give us money, God's precious work is going to stop like all these guys on TV. No, we didn't. just prayed, okay? That week, we got two checks in the mail. Again, nobody knew our situation. We got two checks in the mail for 30000 each. I guess God's in this thing still. So I'm not putting Philip down as being a practical numbers guy. But sometimes Jesus will say to his church, you're a good steward. You're, 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 you're not being extravagant. You're, you're, you're using your money wisely. You're giving to me faithfully. But on this thing, I want you to take a step in faith. Because that builds our faith, doesn't it? Yeah. 
So, you know, Philip, God bless him. You know, Lord, I, we don't have the money for this. You, Lord, we don't have the money for this. Send him away. The Lord said, you don't have to send him away. Matthew 14, 16, you give them something to eat. And the Greek is emphatic. You give them something to eat. I say, you do it. Wow. John 6, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but <laughs> what, is, what are they among so many? What indeed? Lord, you know, there's a kid here with a sack lunch, but what is that going to do? Let me end, because we'll pick it up next week. What is that among so many? What indeed? With men, it would be impossible. But with God, all things are possible. My pastor used to like to point out that the difficulty of anything must always be measured by the agent doing the work. And by that he meant, look, building a skyscraper. Trained people have built many skyscrapers. It's not something that goes beyond our comprehension that trained workers could build a skyscraper. How about trained dogs building a skyscraper? I've seen dogs trained to do a lot of amazing, trained to do a lot of amazing things. I've never seen a, a group of dogs yet that have built a skyscraper. Because when you're talking about the agent doing the work, dogs, it's impossible for dogs to build a skyscraper. Now, when you apply that to God, there is nothing hard for him. If God is the agent doing the work, and of course he is in these impossible situations, then you know what? There's nothing, in fact, Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Of course not. And Jesus said, Mark 9, 23, If you can believe, all things are possible to him or her who believes. We have entered into a season of the year that should remind every single one of us of what the angel Gabriel told a teenage, a young Jewish teenager named Mary when he announced to her that she had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. And Mary responded by saying, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I, I've never known a man in that way. To which Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Listen. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Guys, I don't know all you here in this room, what you're going through. I don't know if you came here this morning desperate because you got some bad news, physically news, news from the doctor, bad physical news, or you're, you're um, dealing with some financial crisis, or your marriage is about ready to crumble. Or there's a wayward child, like we talked to a couple first service. And she's 18 now, and she wants to leave the house and putting her parents down because, you know, they, they hindered her fun. And she's about to step out into a very dangerous world as about as naive a person you could ever expect. I don't know what you're going through or how impossible by human standards it is to fix it. But remember this Christmas season that with our God, nothing will be impossible.
That's the title of this two-part message. With God, nothing will be impossible. You stay desperate before God. You come to him broken and humble. And you cry out to him every single day for whatever it is you're going through. And you tell him, God, I can't. Stop drinking. My marriage, I don't know how to fix it. My child, I've done the best I can, but they want to leave now. And I know they're going to, it's going to be bad. I can't do it, Lord. I don't know what to do. Remember Jehoshaphat? When the three armies were coming against Judah, three very, uh, you know, strong armies, they were no match. Judah was no match for them. They gathered the whole nation in Jerusalem for prayer. Jehoshaphat says, Lord, we're no match for this great multitude. Neither do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. That's desperation. And when you have that kind of desperation before God, well, his ears are attentive. His heart goes out. And his power is released. Remember that. Especially this time of year, right? This time of year, especially remember that. And by God's grace, we'll look next week and continue on this very important subject. Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are <laughs> almighty God to whom, to, you know, to you nothing is impossible or even hard. Lord, you know every person in this room. You know everything they're going through. And Father, we plead in Jesus' name. Touch our lives. Break the bonds of sin. Fill us with your spirit afresh. Give us a heart, Lord, that understands we can do nothing in and of ourselves. We need to rest and trust totally in you to do everything. Give us that grace, Lord, to do that, to remember that, to pray that. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.